Let me just remind you, as we um, uh, come back to this chapter, uh, where we have come from, because we've had um, a three-week break. It's four weeks since we were last looking at 1 Corinthians. We've been, we started uh, on this bite of 1 Corinthians. We've been taking off bites over the last couple of years at various points. We started at chapter 12. And we, we ask the question that seems to be the dominant question in the whole of 1 Corinthians chapters 12 to 14. What does it mean to be a spiritual person? What does it mean for us to be a spiritual community? And we have already seen various answers. A spiritual person, a spiritual community, is a person or people who confess Jesus as Lord. Listen to the sermon some weeks ago if you are confused by that. A spiritual person, a spiritual community, are people who who have been given gifts by the Spirit. And they they are people who with different gifts, who work together as a community to demonstrate Christ to the world, to more fundamentally be Christ to the world in one sense. Local churches are called the body of Christ. But then, um, four weeks ago now, we got to 1 Corinthians 13, And we saw that there is something more important, more fundamental than any of those things that we need to engage with if we are to understand what it means to be spiritual people. More important than any of those things we've spoken of so far is love. Love, we said, is a cardinal virtue. That is... Um, Without it, all other virtues are useless. We may virtuously um, believe the right things, sacrifice our bodies to the flames even, says the Apostle. But if there's no love, then we're nothing. We may be amazingly gifted in lots of ways, If there's no love, we're nothing. So we started four weeks ago asking the question, well, what is love? And we began to answer it by uh, identifying a few things that love is not. Love is not an action, we said. It will result in actions, it absolutely must. But it is not itself an action. It cannot be, because the Apostle could not say, um, could not speaking about, speak about giving all I possess to the poor in verse 3 and surrendering my body to the flames um, and not having love. He's not saying... He's not saying, we said, that there's some other action that you can do called love that, uh, that, 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 that counts. He's saying that the most amazingly sacrificial action 
If it does not have underneath it this thing, love, it is useless. So it results in actions, absolutely, we're going to see that this week, but it is not itself an action. Nor is it of itself an emotion, a particular emotion. We in our culture mainly speak about love in that way, I think. We speak about being in love. And we think of love as, 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 um, as a sense of, of warm, happy, contentedness. But that is only one aspect of love. Love is um, emotional, but it, but, it, but it results in all sorts of emotions, actually, in the real world. Listen to Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4. I read it last time. He says, I wrote to you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. So love is not a particular warm, contented emotion. Is it? It's, it's something deeper below that that on a good day results in warm, contented feelings. But on a, a bad day, a difficult day, love may be just as real and demonstrating it in, itself in all sorts of other emotions. It is not just an emotion, we said. Nor is it just a passionless commitment. That, that has been um, popular in the Christian church in, in a, uh, uh, for, for a good number of years and in, ma- in many circles, drawing on the, the Greek word, one of the few Greek words that a large proportion of Christians know, agape. Agape, say people, is a, is a sort of passionless love, passionless commitment to other people. It is, it is a commitment to the benefit of, of other people devoid of emotion. And that is not true. I mean, that, what we just read from Paul is far from passionless, is it? We cannot say that true love is passionless. Apostle Paul was, was, was passionately emotional. Jesus was passionately emotional. God, as the Bible describes him, is passionately emotional as he expresses his love. So we said, love, then, is deeper than an action, deeper than a single simple emotion. It is, it is certainly not passionless. We said it is a disposition, it is a deep orientation of our hearts, which results in action, which produces all sorts of emotions, which is deeply passionate. But its heart, its core, its essence, is this, is this deep orientation of who we are towards another. We suggested I meant to write it up on the screen and I haven't, so I'll just have to, have to say it to you. 
We suggest that it is a settled, passionate desire for a person and for their good. It is settled. It does not alter. It is passionate. It it is not emotionless. It is a passionate desire. It is towards a person as Christian love is being described. It's for a person. And it is for that person's good. It is, it, it, it's not a sort of narrow, selfish desire like the desire for ice cream or cake or whatever. It is for that person and for their good. It is a settled, passionate desire for a person and for their good. So, so uh, that, that, that sort of beginnings of laying some foundations as we came to understand 1 Corinthians 13 and and, uh, and I've been wrestling with, uh, with the rest of the chapter to try, to, um, try, try to, to see how to teach it to you. And I don't know whether you'll hear this as good news or bad news, but I, I, we have planned three sermons on this chapter and I, I just can't do it. So each one will be shorter, that's the good news. I just can't do it. I, we're going to do it in five, which will actually mean that we will be looking at 1 Corinthians 13 until we get into it. Christmas stuff and then we'll do 14 promise in the new year Um, we just have to do that because I think we need to think deeply about this, as I've looked at this I've I've thought this we really need to get this into our hearts, we really need to understand this and this is what I want us to see in verses 4 and 5 this morning Love is not about me. Okay, well, that's where we're going. I want, that I want you to, to understand this morning. Okay, love is not about me. Frankly, in the world that we live in, Love is primarily about me. It is about an emotion that I enjoy and we delight in another person because they produce that enjoyable emotion that we call love. But actually it's not about a deep giving of ourselves to that person because if they stop giving us that emotion... We, as we say, stop loving them. In fact, we never did. Not, not as the Bible describes it. Christian love is something far more profound than that. That's what I want to unpack for you in verses 4 and 5. It is not about me. It is fundamentally oriented towards the other. It is both, says Paul, passive and active. Love, verse 4, is patient. Love is 
kind. Paul seems to be imagining what happens when, uh, when we meet some challenge to our love. When, a, when another person actually, um, uh, uh, whom we are trying to love, does something to us which stretches our commitment to love. There is a passive response to that, he says. It is called patience. The word, the word suggests just having a, a, a larger capacity to absorb injury from other people. just can take it. When, when that thing that hurts our heart comes to us, the, 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 the disappointment, the, the rough words, real love somehow gives our heart the sort of sponge-like ability to soak that up and not to pour it out in some other direction. It is patient. Not, let me say, inexhaustibly patient. That would be a wrong way to read our, our calling as Christians. We are not called to be eternal doormats. Jesus, who epitomised love and epitomised that ability to, 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 to soak up so much opposition from other people, was at times prepared to confront to criticise, to challenge. The New Testament says that churches as a whole are not to be infinitely patient with unrepentant sinners, for instance. There is such a thing as, as church discipline. But let's not, let's not remember that as the thing at the forefront of our minds. At the forefront of our minds is the call to be patient. A tenor of our interactions is to be patient. And there is an active response as well to those sorts of challenges. The passive one is patience, the active one is kindness. Not only standing there and, and, uh, and soaking it up, but going onto the front foot and actually giving back blessings for persons. Good things when bad things have come to us. There's um, um, a wonderful little uh, passage in the writings of a second century theologian, Tertullian, where he, um, uh, he records uh, a mistake that was commonly made in the second, 
century. The word for a kind person in the Greek was a Christianos. And the word for a Christian was Christianos. And he says, people all over the world are mistaking the title of Christians, Christianos, and thinking people are talking about the Christianos because so amply do they demonstrate their kindness to the world. What a, what a testimony to the lives of those early Christians. They were kind. They blessed those who persecuted them. They prayed for their enemies. They actively pursued ministries of doing good things to those who opposed them. Love, says uh, the Apostle, is kind. And love also has a characteristic response to both the good fortune and ill fortune. That seems to be uh, what's in his mind as um, he gets onto some of the other descriptions of love. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude. If you fall on hard times, or if God has not blessed you as much as the next person, of course your natural response is envy, isn't it? Jealousy. I'm not as bright as them. I'm not as rich as them. I haven't got such a, 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 a nice life partner as they have. I haven't got a life partner at all. I have a difficult time. They have it easy in their job, in their life. And there is that, that bitter envy that so often springs up in our hearts as we look at other people if we're having a bad time. Love doesn't do that, says the Apostle. Love delights in the good things that God has given other people because it is a, because it is a, a desire for that person's good. It's not about me. And then um, perhaps the person who is blessed or perhaps they are blessed and nobody's noticed yet. It does not boast. Perhaps they're enormously gifted at a certain, uh, a certain thing and nobody seems to give us the attention that we deserve for that wonderful gift that we've got. So I'll brag about it. I'll tell the world about it. You know, there are some people that are just always telling you about the wonderful things that they've done, the wonderful person that they are, the wonderful compliments that... Other people gave me. It 
does not boast. It is not proud or, or arrogant or, or uh, literally puffed up. There's, there's a phrase used in our family. It's not a very nice one, but there we go, I'll confess it. A stuffed shirt. Love is not a stuffed shirt. Love is not an overinflated balloon. Someone who's so pleased with all that they've achieved or perhaps all that God has done for them that they, they, they walk around with their noses in the air not really taking any notice of others because oh, I'm so great. Now you see, love has a humility about it and love has a contentment about it, a self-forgetfulness about it. It is not constantly either wallowing in the self-pity that I have not um, been blessed as much as the next person or manipulating others to try to uh, get them to recognise how wonderful they are, we are or, or, or basking in the glory of the good things that God has given us. There is a self-forgetfulness that just gets on and pursues the good of others. It does not envy, it does not brag, it is not puffed. Because love is not about me. You got it? That seems to be what Paul sort of homes in on as his list goes on. It is not rude. That is, it does not bring, behave in a disgraceful way. The word is used in 1 Corinthians 7 to describe um, uh, a, a young man who may bring, it, bring dishonour on a, on a virgin, on a, on a young woman. It doesn't bring dishonour in that way. It doesn't make the world think, oh, look at that person there. Disgraceful. It is not easily angered he says, literally is not irritated. You know, you know how irritating people are? We get irritated by people because we do not love them. I'm thinking about my reaction, my response to that behaviour. I'm chafed by it. I'm fed up by it. Yet love is self-forgetful. That person is no doubt hurt. It may even be really quite sinful. But a person who loves them won't focus on how I'm affected. It will be concerned about them. Love 
keeps no record of wrongs, as the, NI, uh, as the NIV puts it. Or love doesn't um, keep accounts of evil. Doesn't, doesn't reckon it up. Doesn't store it up and say, well, I'll make them pay in the future or doesn't store it up in such a way that, that, that proves that I'm a, a, a victim who has been mistreated. Doesn't keep accounts of that. It is self-forgetful or uh, as Paul puts it absolutely explicitly in the middle of that verse. It is not self-seeking or it does not seek itself. It's not about me. That is the essence of loving behaviour. It is not me focused, it is them focused. I will do everything I can for them. I will be concerned for them. I will sacrifice myself for them. Not because it's some great, wonderful show, but because I have a settled and passionate desire for that person and for their good. My heart is focused on them. So when a person abuses us, perhaps love asks first, well, how have they been hurt? How have I hurt them? What, what is going on in them that makes them behave like that? When a person wrongs us, Our first concern is for them and to help them perhaps with their sin. To restore them gently. Not to wallow in our own pain. When a person ignores us, our reaction is not how pained I am by that. But perhaps what else is going on in their mind that has so distracted them. When a person belittles us, our reaction is not to wallow in the frustration and the pain of that and to build ourselves up and to say, no, I'm not as pathetic and little as that person made me feel. It is perhaps to mourn for their immaturity. William Blake wrote in Songs of Experience, Love seeketh not itself to please, nor for itself hath any care, but for another gives its ease and builds a heaven in hell's despair. Love is not about me.
Now, I know there will be people here who are sitting here and they're saying, well, that just about summarizes it for me. I am not loved like that. People have been impatient, unkind, puffed up towards me. And I have to say, that is our lot in this fallen world. Our calling is in that context to build a heaven in hell's despair to actually be different. You cannot influence the way that other people behave. But you can take hold of how you behave and start doing something different. I think the... uh, even bigger reaction that comes when we look at descriptions of love in that way, when we, when we start to sense how um, uh, high the demand is that the New Testament sets upon us for love, the bigger reaction is, I can't live like that. I just can't. I mean, I just, I hear what you're saying, I see that it's good, I just can't. How could I possibly be patient under the, uh, the, the, the provocation that I've got? How could I possibly be kind? I really can't live like that. And I, and I want to say to you, first of all, every single one of us can't. Okay? Or at least can't with perfection. This is why Jesus needed to die on the cross. Because the challenge and the the quality of life that God sets before us is beyond us and we will sin. We will fail. You cannot read the New Testament without thinking, I cannot live up to this. And the New Testament answer to that is, No, you can't. This is why Jesus had to come, the Son of God, and die on the cross for your sins. Because when you see with clarity what God demands of you, you know you can't pay. You can't do it and you can't pay the penalty for having failed. Jesus died on the cross because we don't love We must get that settled deep in our hearts. But the other side of that, I want to say something else too. Having had that foundation laid in your life, that God has forgiven you through Christ's death on the cross, what I want to say to you is that the New Testament then says, you can start to live like that in ways that you never imagined. Remember, 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, this is the description of a spiritual person. This is a description of a person 
in whom lives the spirit of the living God. And he will transform you. First thing we need to understand, to understand how he transforms us, what, what, what needs to go in our hearts, is, is this, and some of you, for some of you this may be old hat, and for, for, so forgive me, for some of you this may be new, in which case it may take some digesting. There is a paradox here that I really want you to understand. Self-forgetful love is actually no loss. All human beings act at all times according to their best understanding of how they will benefit. You cannot, you physically cannot, at any point, do anything that you think will be a, 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 a loss to you. You may find that hard to believe. Let, let me quote um, Blaise Pascal, first of all, uh, where he probably said it slightly better. All men, he says, seek happiness. There are no exceptions. However different the means they employ, they all strive towards this goal. The reason why some go to war and some do not is the same desire in both, but interpreted in different ways. The will never takes the least step except to that end. This is the motive of every act of every man, including those who go and hang themselves. The moment a person decides to commit suicide, they think, it is better for me if I do that. If they don't think that, they'll go and do the other thing that they think is better. So you absolutely, you absolutely, in one sense, cannot love in this self-forgetful way. It is impossible for the human will to do that. But you see, the Bible makes plain that actually this immediate self-forgetfulness is actually the path to greater gain. And it's only as we see that that we will be able to forget ourselves in the short term. Did you notice in verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 13, Paul um, hints at this sort of thing when he says, if I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames and have not love, I gain nothing. In other words, he assumes that we will be motivated even in giving our bodies to the, to, to surrendering our bodies to the flames by, a, by an understanding of how we gain. And that is fundamental to all of the Bible and all, especially of the New Testament's understanding of how people choose to do things. They choose to do things because they understand that by it they gain. So Jesus, talking about love, says, 
Love your enemies, Luke chapter 6, 35. Love your enemies, do good to them, then your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. He does not say, love your enemies and do good to them and give up all thought of any advantage to yourself. He says, look at where your true advantage is to be found. It is in great rewards for your Heavenly Father. I can forget the injury done to me now. I can be patient with the person who constantly wrongs me. I can be kind to to the person who I really don't want to be kind to. Because in doing so, I have an assurance that my Heavenly Father is pleased. But one day I will hear Him say, Well done, good and faithful servant. That it will be actually both for that person's greater good, but also in the long term for my greater good. You can't love if you don't see that. Not in the way that the New Testament describes it. That's why our world, as it is at the moment, has redefined love in terms of immediate gain to me. Because you can do that. I can love someone when I get immediate affection back. Our world absolutely knows you cannot love someone if there is no prospect of reward. And because our our world has no prospect of reward in anything other than the immediate response that person gives back, our world knows it cannot love in that way. And that is why Christians can be different. Because great is our reward in heaven. Great is the rejoicing that in heaven when God sees a Christian do that. They are able to consider and see this is my greatest good. As Jesus put it, whoever saves his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and the gospel will save it. In other words, he says, you want to save your life, don't you? Well, paradoxically, you've got to lose it. And if you don't see that, you'll be in big trouble because you'll try and save it in the short term and lose it in the long term. Well, it's the same with love. Whoever wants the rewards of love must see where those rewards come from. Love is not about me or is it about me? It is in forgetting my own immediate needs and looking forward to a great harvest in eternity. And Only the work of God by his Spirit can do that.
Galatians 5 verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is first love. In other words, you see, it is a characteristic mark of the Spirit's love in people's lives that they are enabled to love in that self-forgetful way. The Spirit opens our eyes to the inheritance that God has in store for us. The Spirit opens our eyes to Jesus so that we fall in love with him and we want to please him. The Spirit uh, uh, opens, our, uh, opens our, our hearts so that we have a hunger for God which is deeper and stronger than the hunger to be recognised now or to, to vent our anger or whatever those other lesser hungers are. The Spirit actually starts to impart the very character of God into our hearts because you see, he is love. He did it first. He gave himself totally in Jesus that he would have the eternal joy an inheritance of innumerable people forgiven through Christ's death on the cross, glorifying him. He loved us like that. And he makes little God-like, Christ-like people down through history who in a very imperfect way in a very poor way, can start to love in the way that God calls us to. Now, I'm excited every time I see that, every time I see that in my own heart, because I know how hard it is and I know how often I fail. I'm excited that I see it here. Let me say, God is hovering over this congregation, this group of people by his Spirit. God says, this group of people are mine and I'm going to change them like that. And I'm going to do it first by showing them what real love is and then enabling them to throw themselves on me and then by my spirit I'm going to open their eyes. I'm going to give them a hunger for me that transcends their hunger for lesser satisfactions. Because to avoid love to embrace hell. C.S. Lewis put it like this. To love all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, wrap it around with hobbies and little luxuries, avoid all entanglements, lock it safe in the casket of your selfishness. 
And in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. Your heart will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers of love is hell. Apostle John in his old age just used to repeat one thing that we're going to repeat again and again over the next few weeks. He used to say, little children, love one another.